You're listening to the Talking Forest Podcast with your host, Kendra Burns. In today's world, it's important to communicate your story online, and Kendra can help you by diving into social media and providing you with free tips and insights on how to build your organic social media following and shine online. Having been raised low income, first in her family to go to college, and a proud international military spouse, Kendra develops creative media content across many social media platforms from anywhere in the world. Her inspiration comes from the people who give her hope and believe in her so she can believe in you. Follow the Talking Forest podcast today to see how she lives the dream of a traveling virtual entrepreneur and get your tech tips as we keep up with the latest on social media. Hi, Alex. I'm Kendra Burns. I'm so excited that you're here with me today and this is the Talking Forest podcast. I can't believe uh, I've seen you around and it's been awesome. This is going to be episode 73, uh, sponsored by Forest Proud. You own a consulting agency, and I thought that was really cool that you've done a lot of things in between 13 years of experience. Uh, so do you want to talk about some of the things that led up to you opening up your own uh, consultant business? Sure. So I, um, uh, right out of college, I took a job with the Florida Division of Forestry, just outside of Jacksonville, Florida. I did that job uh, for about five or six months. But, you know, as I was, I kind of chose that position because it was in the South and it was closer to, to home. It was just one of the options that I was looking at. But I had turned down um, a job with uh, the U.S. Forest Service on the Allegheny National Forest in northwestern Pennsylvania. And, um, you know, I, I was actually encouraged to consider that position by uh, the former dean of the College of Forest Resources at Mississippi State at the time, a guy named George S. Foster. And um, he and I became really great friends, and he was always someone looking out for me, which was great. But um, so, um, I decided, you know, even though he strongly encouraged me to consider the Forest Service because he was from the Forest Service, uh, came to the academic world and then went back to the Forest Service. You know, I, I really, I just didn't want to move that far away from home. I didn't know anyone who lived in the state of Pennsylvania. And so I knew that those winters were going to be rough for uh, you know, a kid from Mississippi who had never actually seen winter before. So, so I, uh, I turned down the U.S. Forest Service and I went to work. Uh, with the Florida Division of Forestry, and um, you know, I worked there for five or six months. And actually, the the Forest Service called back and said, "Hey, you know, would you reconsider?" And um, and I did. And so I, I moved to Northwestern Pennsylvania, and I worked on the Allegheny National Forest as a uh, silviculturist uh, and uh, a law enforcement officer for for six years, and then. Um, I, I, I did get get tired of those winters, and so I, I wanted to come back home. <laughs> and um, I came back south in uh, 2012, and I just, you know, I just kind of decided that I wanted to try something different. And I, you know, this uh, opportunity would come along where um, there was this sort of groundbreaking work that uh, the U.S. Endowment with Forestry and Communities was doing. With, with African-American landowners, and they were piloting this project in, in Alabama, South Carolina, and North Carolina. And so I had heard about that, and I really, you know, I thought it was very exciting. So I um, 
I applied for that and, and I, I got that position and I, I worked over in Alabama for about three and a half years uh, doing that work as an advocate for for private landowners, you know, uh, families, farms, you know, forest landowners. And um, so I, I did that work and that work was part of, you know, it was in partnership with the U.S. Department of Agriculture and and others, but I, I did that work for about three and a half years. And and after that, you know, after after really learning a lot more about the profession from the vantage point of someone who works for private landowners daily, I felt very strongly that that consulting was a really important uh, niche that was not oftentimes represented in terms of ethnic diversity within our profession. So I wanted to try it. And so I, um, I started Legacy Land Management in 2017. And, you know, the entire way I've been very fortunate with relationships, you know, like the great folks at the U.S. Endowment for Forestry and Communities who also um, helped me to create a partnership with a, a much bigger firm that I've, that I've, uh, I've been uh, partnered with them for about three years. They're Southern Forestry Consultants and Wiregrass Ecological out of, out of Bainbridge, Georgia. And so, um, you know, we, we've been, um, you know, kind of going along with a partnership. And it's been really great because it's, uh, it's given me the opportunity to really kind of sit at the foot of some really fantastic foresters and learn a heck of a lot. And so, you know, I, I've done that. And, and, you know, it's been wonderful. And so, you know, now I'm kind of... Uh, you know, back back with you know just uh, you know legacy and and other partnerships that I'm developing in different places and uh, yeah that's kind of a long winded yeah. <laughs> uh, narrative but yeah that's that's how I got to where I am today. Wow, Alex, and I'm so happy that you did a lot of work with uh, the Sustainable Land Retention Program for African Americans mm-hmm. because that was near and dear to my heart in um, an effort that I was doing as well, and I actually got to report on it and there was an episode of America's Forest with Chuck Lavelle Mm -hmm. went out to South Carolina and did a feature on that and then I got to write a blog about it uh, for that episode as well and you know consulting with them and you know at this time I was just a third party too uh, but also you can say partner to uh, the sustainable land retention program and it opened Mm -hmm. my eyes to what was needed. And I, my first questions when I saw that program was why would that be needed? And then I looked at it from a different lens and was like, oh, it's because there are landowners that inherit land. And I've, you know, since then, that was my, you know, my uneducated self three years ago. I have since done a lot of research into why that would happen. And so that program is needed for people who need not only education, but assistance on their estate planning, on mm-hmm. inheriting land. There are landowners that have land that have never stepped foot on their property and that kind of thing. So, yeah, I also learned in that same effort about the heirs property. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's really cool that you guys have that because it prevents people from getting paid off real quick or not knowing the the, the value of their land there are trees that you can walk in and Tree City USA and all around. And I, because I'm a forester, know the value of those trees. And I've done tree canopy research and that kind of thing. It goes the same way from urban to rural areas. And we needed to know 
those kinds of things and also make sure that everyone had equitable access to that. So when I saw that you were involved in that at one point, that was uh, definitely something I was excited to see. Well, thank you. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that, Candy. Yes, I was uh, one of the foresters to help sort of develop and pilot the, the uh, I guess now it's called the Sustainable Forestry and Land Retention Project, but, but back then it was a little bit different. But so, so yeah, so one of the things that is, so the USDA defines these communities as uh, underserved and socially disadvantaged. And one of the themes that runs current uh, throughout these communities is lack of, of, uh, of information and la- lack of access to information. And so, you know, you have um, these communities that have a lot of historical, you know, challenges in terms of, uh, you know, past issues with discrimination or what have you. And so um, the whole objective, uh, the Sustainable Forestry and Land Retention Program was to identify and remove barriers to involvement in USDA conservation programs, and then to help landowners understand a little bit better about the asset that they had in terms of, you know, their land, right? And then to help them um, understand and gain access to to uh, using that land as an asset and monetizing, it, if you will, so or improving its value in a myriad of different ways. And so, um, so yeah, so I, you know, I was uh, very fortunate, very fortunate to have had the opportunity to uh, be a part of that work, and and it is the reason why I decided to go out as a private consultant. Because there are just so many folks who who simply don't know uh, the important parts of how this business works and why it's important to hire a, a consulting forester to help you, and why why the importance uh, you know of a profession as consulting forestry is. You know, it's it's a really cool profession. It's it's, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, yeah. I got to learn all about it through all of my all my communications with Society of American Foresters. And the funny thing, thing, the funny thing about this is I actually was with my husband, who's U.S. Air Force. I was living in Germany when I learned about all these things. And then, you know, I was just praying that we would get a location next in the United States that I could do my forestry work in and, you know, do what I did on the coast, the other coast for 10 years and then do it here and I just prayed and prayed and prayed. I manifested all those things. And mm-hmm. I landed in the first in forestry state, North Carolina, and I had no idea. I didn't even know anything about living in the South. So <laughs> I've been here for about a year now. And yeah. when Alex talks about equitable access, there are a lot of barriers. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually witnessing them for myself now in person. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, my neighborhood is very cut off. I cannot walk to the grocery store on the the shortest path. There actually are no crosswalks. There's no sidewalks. I'm stuck between a highway and interstate. And I have a community here that's blocked off from safe access to a lake. And that's blocked off to safe access to parks. And I, I just, I can't, it's called fragmentation. And it's just 
something that I didn't have as much of in Washington State, where it's a little bit more progressive near King County, Seattle area. And I didn't know how lucky I was until I landed here. And it humbled me this past year. I had to find a place to work out that was actually safe uh, with a bunch of ladies. And I, you know, I go to a studio that gets locked every night and we're locked in and we, you know, we dance away and we're safe. But I don't have that ability to just go out and do that because I'm next to the highways, you know, and you never know. And so, you know, that's I'm talking about physical barriers, but there's also barriers internally to access to resources. And so with consultancy, we, Alex and I, are able to partner and work together and he can partner with anyone and, you know, start working on that type access. And so that's exactly what I've done as well. I became a forester, North Carolina communication chair. I work with a tree farm program here as well and Women's Forest Congress. And they're all tied in and, and it's all efforts that, you know, come together for us. So I'm really excited to see that, you know, your journey has taken you so many to so many different states and you get to see it for yourself as as well. So I guess the next question right now would be to go into more of the forestry aspect. What are the major issues facing our forests today? Well, I, I think that's a pretty complicated uh, question there. You know, um, I, I think there's a lot of issues and challenges that we have uh, on the horizon. I would say the the biggest uh, of which from my you know vantage point is well I, I think within the forestry profession you have to work a little bit harder to reach the general public you know and um, show them the value of who we are as a profession and our knowledge base and why it's applicable for them and um, I think that uh, you know that alone could really uh, help to remove a lot of challenges out of our way so that we could uh, use the knowledge and information that we have in order to just uh, make the environment much better. So, yeah, yeah, I I would say, you know, of course we have issues like forest health and, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, if you're out well, you know, fire is of course an issue. and, and, you know, we have other things, but, you know, I, I would say uh, communication and connection with the general public is probably, in, in my opinion, uh, perhaps the most important. And that's why I took on Talking Forests was because mm-hmm. it's a passion project for me. And it's something that I absolutely was looking at from the agency standpoint, because I worked behind the, the scenes in the States. I worked at associations and i could not get into the field i was able to show on my resume that i'd been doing landscaping in order to keep a roof over my head i had been doing uh all the schooling i had the chainsaws i had the the tools anything that you needed to go work in a state nursery or um, something like that i had all the experience but no one picked me up and where that barrier was for me was that i was a woman and they weren't willing to take what i knew and form it into something that they could use and that they could teach me on their tools. I already knew how to do weed whacker, push mower. Believe me, I came from low income. I came from, you know, a single mom that I made more money when I was 18 than she ever did. And so I, I was sitting here just in 2015 trying to get into the sector 
just screaming at the top of my lungs saying, I just want a job and be in the field. And I ended up in offices and, you know, here I am as a communications consultant because I'm trying to help build that connection. And we can't keep putting our heads in the sand. That's what the forest sector did for so many years. So Forest Proud and Talking Forests and others are finally coming out as, you know, assisting the communications of the sector because you can go out into, you know, some of your different neighborhoods and start asking about forestry or what are you going to do with with your friends this weekend? And, you know, are you going to go outside and enjoy it? Are you do you go hiking? What are your hobbies? Those kinds of things. And when you bring up, you know, going out in the forest, they they can't relate to it anymore sometimes. And even though they have them, I mean, there's state parks, there's all the the um, boating out in Emerald Isle and OBX, you know, all that stuff just 60 minutes away. And it's because, like you said, I agree with you that it hasn't become like a social norm or it hasn't been normalized. And so that this sector has a lot of work to do. Well, yeah, I, I think, um, you know, I, I, you know, I think communication is key. Um, you know, from working with the general public, you know, uh, daily, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, it's often clear that, you know, a lot of times they don't really understand what it is that, that we do in many ways. And, you know, I, I think that it's important that we, that we are a public resource, you know, in, in, in terms of how we uh, are available for the country at large with, uh, you know, making a lot of the things better that, that you that you pointed out, you know, in terms of uh, public green spaces or, or, you know, private spaces even or, or what have you. And so, you know, I, I think, uh, and I, I feel very strongly that as a profession, we, we, uh, we have the resources and the know-how mm-hmm. and, you know, we could do a lot you know, that, that I think would, would really be very beneficial, but yeah, I, I, I see it as a, as a challenge, you know, as a challenge that we need to work on uh, yeah. to communicate with, with the world around us. So my follow-up question to that is how would you like to see for forestry change? Yeah. I, you know, if anything, I, I guess I just answered that question in terms of, yeah, you know, I, I think we just, uh, we continue to work hard at communicating, you know, with uh, with the world around us about how we are or can be useful, rather, you know. Yeah, I would encourage people um, that are listening to get into their community groups, go into the town hall, go into their Rotary clubs, go in and ask to even give a presentation um, so people can understand it better. And yeah, the the biggest thing back when I was trying to get into the forestry consulting field was, are you a park ranger? Uh, no, absolutely not. That's something that I could have gone into, but it's a different field. It's, it's not the same. So, you know, we're taking as a forestry consultant, we're taking inventory of trees and seeing, you know, how to get the best, not only economic value, but also the best sustainability and regeneration out of that as well. And so, I love the efforts. I've been supporting many efforts that talk about restoration work. There's different species out there that we're trying to restore or trying to keep just keep going because of the the beetle infestation or the emerald ash borer or, um, you know, invasive species is another issue that we have that we have to tackle all the time. 
Um, and so these all kind of are, are webbed together. They all come in and have a, a say. And so forestry consultants can be that person to say, hey, this is what you should do if you have this. This is what you should do if, you know, you have something come down from the state. Because in Washington State, there were a lot of tiers of management where they would put a blanket statement over all forested lands, but it didn't apply to small forest landowners because it was going to take away part of their retirement or part of their scholarship funds for their kids. So we're not only thinking short term, you know, I think you you know this very well that forestry is a 50 to 100 year investment or, you know, sustainability thing that we can do. And my favorite thing is I've been seeing the the Longleaf restoration. They've been doing really, the Longleaf Alliance have been doing really good. And I think the difference between the West after living out there and starting to live here is that fire, you said it earlier, fire is accepted in the South because it's a tool that you have to use and you haven't stopped using it as much as the West and uh, fire safe communities and things like that. I think people are getting a wake up call because mother nature is literally ripping through their neighborhoods and they can't do anything about it after it's not been educated or, you know, the community doesn't know about fire wise or fire smart adapted communities. So that's really cool that, you know, you go in and, and educate people with all those resources as well. Right. So, right. You know, I think, um, you know, one of the things that, uh, that I, you know, see maybe perhaps as an observation is that, you know, within the within the South, I mean, uh, you know, you know, a lot of a lot of the narrative of Southern culture and Southern life is sort of weaved into our relationship with uh, with the land around us. And so, you know, how we interact with the land, how we manage it, our relationship with it is all sort of dictated by you know, our history, if you will. And so, um, you know, the the way that we approach fire here in the South, I would say, uh, you know, for lack of a better way to explain it, is kind of cultural, you know, whereas, you know, we have an expectation that fire is a, a part of the landscape, right? And, you know, we, we understand I think in very real terms that, you know, these ecosystems that we uh, love so much, be it Longleaf or, or other Southern ecosystems are, you know, they, they basically, uh, they evolved with fire as an important part of, of that process. And so I, I would just say, you know, we're, I, I guess, you know, Southerners aren't, aren't afraid of fire. And, no. you know, I, I, um, I do think that that's a that's a really great example of how you know historically uh, we could have perhaps been more effective communicators with you know communities in terms of uh, what these communities need you know in terms of uh, safety and being healthy you know environments and that kind of thing. So so I uh, you know I, I you know it seems like maybe there's kind of a I suppose, you know, somewhat of a, a changing of the tide in terms of how people think about fire out west and all of that, you know, and, and I hope that really continues, I guess is what I'll say, because, 
you know, we, we can't really have healthy forest ecosystems in many ways without fire. When we're, you know, when we exclude fire, we, we deprive these ecosystems of something that they have evolved with and that they need desperately. So, so yeah. Absolutely. I totally agree. And some of the last prairies out in my state that are being saved are saved because of military bases, mm-hmm. because the military bases bought up the property where these prairies exist and they have mm-hmm. over time from the native Americans have been burned and that was normal. Mm-hmm. And that was something that we, you know, have done in the West, but we've suppressed it so much that now these events are happening. It went from, you know, a hundred year fire, 50 year fire, mm-hmm. 10 year to now it's every year. And when you have these like shock and awe articles coming out of, you know, uh, this is the worst fire year ever. I I continue to, with my education, understand that it's because they're not adapted to to it, and it's not a cultural thing for them. So, yeah, absolutely. I'm glad that uh, we got to talk. Well, about and that. I and I think that as long as you know, there's been this exclusion of the presence of fire over time. You know, you you've just sort of you know accumulated and built up this uh, likelihood that fire is inevitably going to be there. Mm-hmm. But the likelihood is that, you know, in our human terms, in our human context, it's, it's really bad, right? When it, because we've excluded the presence of fire to help with a sort of maintenance over a period of time. You know, you know now when fire inevitably comes and it will, then it's, it's, it's worse, right? Um, and not, it's not just a, a tool that, that is helping to maintain the health of this ecosystem, it's actually very adversarial to the ecosystem and to the public, to, to people, right? So, right. yeah. One of my favorite <laughs> quotes that came out of, um, I was a volunteer for the Commissioner of Public Lands um, back in 2016. And one of my favorite things that I kept hearing on both sides was fire knows no boundaries. Mm-hmm. Meaning it don't care if it's <clears throat> land, if it's a city property, if it's your house, it just, it doesn't. So you, you, you got to be ready. And, and so those are things like I, just because of my knowledge, I simply, if I'm going to go away for two days, I'm going to spray down my house. I'm going to take out all of the leaves. I don't have any understory because I have 20 different oaks in my, my half acre at, at home, just around my house. And, you know, I make sure that all my neighbors have my number. I, you know, all that stuff. And, you know, just in case something happens, you you take away the brush, which is, you know, laying on the ground. You spray down the perimeter of your house, spray your roof. Even if you got to put a sprinkler up there, do, do something creative, you know, mm-hmm. um, especially when we're getting hotter and warmer uh, days out there, especially, you know, out here in the, the south, you can get a, a humid 90 degree day and hurricane season brings lightning. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, absolutely. So I'll uh, move on from our our soapbox, because we could go for hours on on fire, I'm sure. But the next question is, and I know this is awesome because I've looked you up. You have a Blood Origins podcast episode. Mm-hmm. You're in hunting, you're in hunting magazines. <laughs> Let's talk more about you know like what you love to do in the in the outdoors and some of that advocacy that you do for hunting. Because I also grew up in um, hunting. I you know I had people that took me out on deer browsing dates where we would just take out a you know. A section of our night when it when it was getting dusk and we'd go out to the fields and 
look for deer. That was just something we did. And I'm sure yeah. that you guys do that too out here in the South. Yes, of course. Well, uh, so so for me, hunting hunting is the reason why I, I wanted to be a forester. And, um, you know, and so, you know, I, I uh, so I studied the Mississippi State, of course, and graduated there in uh, December of 2005 with a double major in forestry and wildlife management. And so, you know, every every bit of that was, you know, the result of my having grown up and, you know, really, really love to hunt and, and all of that. And now, you know, I, you know, I, I, I guess I do, you know, have, you know, sort of a, a presence, if you will, in the, in the hunting world. But, you know, um, the reason why is because, you know, I, I think these things are so, so related, uh, you know, so as foresters and, and wildlife biologists and everything, you know, we, um, I think, have a, a very, very good understanding on how to how to manage healthy forests and, and, and ecosystems. And, you know, I think there are a lot of people who who love to hunt and who don't necessarily know from the the vantage point of someone, you know, who has, you know, the sort of knowledge and information base that the forestry community has. And so I, I just kind of wanted to, I guess if you will, bring those sort of things together. You know, and that's a big part of what legacy land management is all about is, you know, just helping people, helping communities in terms of creating healthier forest ecosystems and, and hunting being a byproduct of that, I suppose, you know, so, you know, I, I, um, you know, from a, uh, from the vantage point of an African-American a person who grew up in the South, I think, you know, talking to a lot of people from all over the country and all over the world, there there seems to not be much of a uh, of a historical understanding of African Americans and their connection and relationship to the land. You know, be it the American South, the Midwest, uh, you know, out west in areas like Arizona or what have you. And so, you know, I guess in a way, I've always just been really proud and very outspoken about the experiences that I had, you know, growing up hunting um, here in Mississippi. And, you know, it, it just all kind of sort of came together fortuitously, I guess, you know, some of that, uh, you know, college education and professional development as a forester, you know, people people actually kind of listen to the things that I say, <laughs> which yeah. is, which is cool, you know, but, um, you know, I, I definitely am, uh, I'm very humbled and, uh, very, very grateful for a lot of the relationships and connections that I've, uh, been able to make out in the hunting world. You know, I was, uh, you know, this, the, this past weekend I was in, uh, uh Omaha, Nebraska for Fessit Fest and Coil Classic there. And, uh, you know, I, I got to sit down and talk to Hank Shaw and, you know, we, we planned on, you know, connecting at some point. And, you know, I've, you know, I've, uh, you know, talking to several of the higher ranking members of, of backcountry hunters and anglers, you know, I've, you know, I, I know Randy Newberg pretty well. Like, so it's, you know, and, and of course, Robbie, Robbie Kroger with Blood Origin. So it's, you know, it's, uh, it is, uh, it, it's, it's cool, but yeah, I, you know, I get the opportunity to sort of talk about my passion for hunting, but also talk about it from the vantage point of a, of a forester and wildlife biologist where, um, I think people, 
you know, people kind of, you know, like, I, so I, I guess people perhaps see the passion that I have for, for all of this and it, and it comes across, I guess. So, um, yeah, I'm pretty thankful for that, I guess. Yeah. If you're going out with uh, some of those bird folk, you might need a bird dog. You might need a, yeah. a, a pointer or, you know, a lab retriever or something like that. Yeah. I have right. a collie, so I've been around the world for, with my husband and in the air force and we've met a lot of people mm -hmm. and sometimes I meet people that are in the service with, you know, other different dogs. And I've seen, I've seen bird dogs. My dog doesn't even go in the water. We actually, uh, mm. we pick them up and throw them in the water. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a different philosophy, but I understand that the, um, being able to, to know and educate other people, meet people mm -hmm. who are the same, look, you know, people who you're talking about role models that you you're looking up to um, mm -hmm. and being in that same space is what it's all about. And, you know, supporting each other and, and it humbles you when you meet someone who you think is better than you, but we're all human in the end. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I would absolutely agree with that, you know, uh, so I, you know, I'm also on the board of a national nonprofit called Hunters of Color. You know, we're, we're doing a lot of work, a lot of, uh, you know, work with uh, communities of folks, you know, diverse communities of people and trying to get them into into the hunting space, you know, because, you know, all of it, again, all of this stuff is sort of interrelated. You start talking about hunting, yep. you've got to talk about the North, North American wildlife model and how important that legislation is in terms of, you know, going back, you know, creating healthier landscapes and, and healthy habitats for wildlife. And again, you know, who, who sort of understands that better than foresters and wildlife biologists, right? And so, you know, we, we all have a role to play. And I, and I suppose I just, uh, I try my best to fill the, the role as best I can. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And representing people of color, too, is really, really mm -hmm. important. And just bringing that legacy. And I love legacy land right. management. That makes well, thank you. sense. It's, it's all yeah. connecting the dots. My head's like, man, this is awesome. So, yeah, I totally understand. And I think it's awesome that you do that. The reason why I'm from Washington State is because my grandfather is a... He's passed away. He passed away when my mom was 16, but he was a, a gill netter on the coast mm. of, you know, Alaska, Aleutian mm -hmm. Islands, all the way down to the Columbia River, which is in Oregon. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm from. Otherwise, I would have been born in Canada. Wow, okay. Yeah, I'm quarter Canadian, uh, mm -hmm. had I not. So, you know what I grew up in with my, my uncle who was hunting, but not only hunting, we also went out to the Puget Sound and the Hood Canal, which is in the Olympic Mountains. And we harvested uh, clams, gooey ducks. We had salmon, trout fishing. We had going out and getting just cockle, uh, mussels, mm -hmm. and different mm -hmm. groups. And we also did Dungeness crabbing in our July. So we, you know, we spend a whole week out in July doing that crabbing. What I'm, what I'm getting to is the memory of having to fill out the card. You had to have a certain weight. You couldn't have for for crab, especially. You couldn't take females. You had to have a measuring tool on on board and all these things. And back then, I had no idea. I had no idea that we were um, generating a system to be able to save our resources and have enough for everyone. And now it's just like, okay, yep. If I ever, you know, get out on and have a, a boat, some of our neighbors have boats and go fishing, go hunting. You have those tags and they're they're meant for that to do conservation work and 
And so that's all what ties into, you know, keeping the land sustainable, whether it's flora or fauna. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, you just illustrated very beautifully how, you know, at the beginning of this, you know, this thing that we, you know, this thing called life, you know, where, you know, we're, you know, we're tagging along behind, you know, the, the folks in our family who are older than us, right, our parents or grandparents or whomever, and how those early experiences really sort of, uh, you know, set set the tone in a way for uh, our passion, perhaps where, where our lives will become. And I think, uh, you know, for me, there's there's been nothing perhaps more beautiful than, you know, the reality of how closely my family and the entire community around me has had this relationship with land. And, you know, I, I don't know that I ever really sort of intentionally said that I'm going to manifest this thing or this, you know, it's just, it's, it's all just kind of come together in this sort of fortuitous way. Wow. You know, I, yeah, I was just, so I was recently, well, thank you. On, on put us on land for a purpose. We're right we're here now for these reasons, and so that's right. Already be embedded in us, but we have to access mm -hmm. it ourselves. Right, right. You know, I, I um, so I was recently on the uh, on a, a, another podcast, and and um, you know, the uh, the interviewer said the same thing. He's like, you know, you have this all of these things going on, and they all sort of come back to this one thing. And I and I just really uh. I suppose I had not thought about that, you know, so, yeah. <laughs> we get wrapped up you know. every day. We get wrapped up in mm -hmm. our own heads. We get wrapped up in right. our little, our, our community. And, you know, I try to take time to leave. I'm actually going to right. the Timber Conference in Oregon in a month. And I just, you know, I try to get out and, and learn different things. Mm -hmm. And that's helped me move even further into my passion because I see it from a different angle or I see why, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion matters and, you know, that kind of thing. So yes, I, I totally agree with you. And so to move into our, our next question, it's the, the forest proud question. What does forest mm -hmm. proud mean to you personally? Talking Forests is happy to have hashtag forest proud as an in-kind sponsor of the Talking Forest podcasts. What is Forest Proud, we are a community committed to making choices that keep forests as forests. We work at family businesses, forest product companies, conservation, recreation organizations, universities, and government agencies. Many of us have done so for generations. We are hikers, hunters, bikers, landowners, loggers, truck drivers, architects, researchers, foresters, students who work in and care about and share a passion for forests and forest products. The hashtag Forest Proud community is bigger than you might think. What does forest proud mean? It's a good question. Forest proud means different things for different people, and that's a good thing. We all have a part to play in making choices that keep our forests as forests and help make our neighborhoods, communities, and lives better. If you live, work, or play in the forests or with forest products, you're a part of the forest proud community. Forestproud.org welcomes you. Oh my gosh, that is such a, a great question. You know, uh... You know, I could answer that in a whole lot of different ways, Ken. But but I, you know, I would say, uh, you know, I'm I'm a uh, I'm a kid who grew up, you know, um, traipsing around, uh, you know, South Central Mississippi in the Pine Hills and uh, the the hill country of the uh, you know the of Northeast. I mean, North North Central Mississippi and the Delta. So 
you know, we, of course, you know, we always refer to that as the woods, right? But, uh, you know, those woods have absolutely left an indelible mark in terms of, you know, even even who I, I, I guess, you know, who I see myself as being, you know, on a, on a daily basis. I'm very, I'm very proud of the connection that we, my family and community have had with the forest uh, around us. And, you know, we have, uh, you know, those, those forests have, we relied on those for subsistence, you know, for recreation and for um, a sense of connectedness and, and even down to our, you know, our, uh, our deeper relationships in terms of spirit, spirit, spiritual identity, right? So, you know, I, you know, I, I don't know if I if I answered your question there, but I, but I think that uh, it's it's just important. I love the term forest proud, and, and I think you know that I, you know in my life there's probably nothing I've been more proud of than my connection with forest. So, yeah, absolutely, I see it as all interconnected and. You know, it's great to to talk about forest bathing, and I bring that up because it's spiritual, and it's something that I had to work on, and I learned how to do on a different continent. I learned how to do meditation and Reiki energy work, all that on in Europe from practitioners that have already known and were their purpose was to teach other people how to do that. And I kind of get that it's it's a metaphor, but deer in the headlights look, and people mm-hmm. are like you got a bathtub out in the forest. And I'm like, no, you're going out and actually receiving what the wisdom of that particular area or uh, those species that you're around have to give you. And you can tap into that, you know, from a, a spiritual perspective. And so that's why I didn't want to ever move away from being in the forest or the forest sector because it is a prescription for humans. Yeah. So. Yeah. It makes us a lot happier. It keeps us grounded. I mean, yeah, everything. Yeah. So then the last question today to wrap up the interview is, what is the most valuable tip to tell our listeners? And do you have anything to add? I would say if you're a private landowner, you definitely want to hire a consultant forester (laughs) to help you. Um, You know, um, it, it pays off in the long run. And, um, you know, I would say if you are with, you know, a forester within the industry, you know, take a little bit more care when you, you are working with the general public and, you know, landowners or public agencies or whomever, you know, just make sure you're doing the best job to represent the professional well. Absolutely. And so I'm excited to have you on and we'll have some of the things that you mentioned in our show notes below. And so, um, yes, I am so excited that I finally got to talk to you. You've been in my mind um, for a few yeah. years. We've Thank you. each other and, mm-hmm. and so I think that everything that you've done and that you're doing is going towards that one single purpose. Exactly. Thank you. Yeah, I just want to see you where you are in five years and hope that our, our future is great. And I think one of the best inventions I've seen in the South so far is a, a hunting club on a tree farm. I think that's mm-hmm. one, of the, one of the best things I've seen because that's bringing the two worlds together, right? Yeah, right, right. I agree. I agree. Uh, yep. Some yeah. of those good things that you can lean into and, and people and communities that you can be involved in. So we talked about that on the podcast episode today. So 
just wanted to say thanks, Alex, and you have a great rest of your day. Thank you for being on. Thank you so very much, Kendra. I appreciate it.